this evening's reading is from Simeon's chapter 13, starting at first one. Suppose I speak in the language of human beings or of angels. If, if I don't have love, I am only a loud gong or a noisy symbol. Suppose I have the gift of prophecy. Suppose I can understand all the secret things of God and know everything about him. I suppose I, I have enough faith to move mountains. If I don't have love, I am nothing at all. Suppose I give everything I have to poor people. And, and suppose I give myself a difficult life so I can brag. If I don't have love, I get nothing at all. Love is patient, love is kind. Love does not want what belongs to others. It does not brag. It, it's not pr proud. It's not a dishonor to others, to the people. It does not look. It does not look out for its own interests. It does not easy, easily become angry. Love is not happy with evil, but is full of joy when the truth is spoken. It always protects. It always trusts with hopes it never gives up. Love never fails, but prophecy will pass, speaking in languages that had not been known before will end and knowledge will pass away. If we know it's not complete, what we prophesy now is not perfect, but when, but when what is complete comes, the thing that are not complete will pass away. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I had the understanding of a child. But when I came a man, I put, I put the way of childhood behind me, put the ways of childhood, be childhood behind me. Now we see only a dim likeness of things. It is as, it is as if we, we were seeing them in a foggy, mirror, but someday we will see clearly, we will see face to face. <laughs> what 
I know now it's not complete, but someday I, I will know completely, just as God knows me completely. The three most important things to have are faith, hope, and love. The greatest, but the greatest of them all is love. Well, I don't really know how to follow Richard's reading because it was so great. So just let me shift a little bit. Richard was reading from the New International Reader's Version. So if you're um, looking at the Bible in your phone, you might want to see if you can look up that version um, because we will be uh, using that one as we go through. If you have another Bible, please keep it open as we'll be reading as we go. So this evening, we're thinking about love. And the picture that I had in my mind uh, when I started preparing was of mud. And uh, it was a picture of two people, and one is standing in the mud and really quite stuck there. The other person um, comes into the mud and really stomps in the mud, really like Peppa Pig jumping up and down in the mud and saying, I am not going anywhere. And the person who walked into the mud is there to help the person who's a bit stuck. But there's something else in the distance that we don't see of this story and I didn't see in this picture. And I really thought, what is this all about? It's a really odd thing to start with and it seems so incongruous when we're thinking about love and particularly this passage about love. Normally we think about this associated with weddings and really happy things. But there's more to it and more to this concept of love than just romance and weddings. So we want to think a little bit about this passage. So our first thing, context. The letter is written by Paul. It's written to the church in Corinth. Corinth is in southern Greece. It's a coastal town, a port. It was a busy place, lots going on. And there were people of different cultures and different backgrounds in the church. Word has come to Paul Paul, who set up this church, that there are some problems. There are divisions, there are arguments, and some questionable lifestyles within this community of believers. So within uh, the chapters of Corinthians up to chapter 13, he's already addressed arguments and quarrels and arrogance. He's talked about sexual behavior, ethics around marriage, how to relate outside the church um, community, and he has uh, established his position of authority as an apostle of Jesus. In chapter 11, he talks further about how to be a worshipping family together, despite their diversity. And then chapter 12 continues that by talking about spiritual gifts. He talks about the value of the Holy Spirit's gifts of prophecy, of speaking in tongues, of interpreting tongues, and the ability to lead people and to teach them and to come alongside them. The gifts that he talks about are designed to encourage a community of believers and to look ahead to something more, to teach them something that they could never know themselves. It is a revelation of God's holy wisdom. In verse 27 of chapter 12, he says, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. 
He's telling them that they each have a role to play in this amazing church family. It doesn't matter whether it's seen or whether it's more in the background and hidden. Each one has value and all are important. So he said all of that already. And then we get to chapter 13, where for I think the first time in the letter, he uses the word love. And then he uses it nine times in the next 13 verses. And it is not the dreamy, romantic, wedding um, language of love that we might put in an Instagram post. Paul is in the middle of this very instructive letter. He's very matter-of-fact about it. He uses a word for love, um, which his readers would have been familiar with. But we actually need to explore it because we use the same word for love whether we're talking about peas and carrots, our favorite pets, our parents, or God. So we need to understand what it is that he's talking about. So Paul uses the word agape for love, which is that, um, the little video that we had right before the service. And this is a word thinking about the love of God for man, humankind, and the love of man for God back. And it is a response. It is powerful, it's strong, it's joyful, but it's really solemn. And it's also sacrificial. And so this agape love is a thread that runs right through from the beginning of Genesis and the story of perfection in the garden of Adam and Eve with God. And it runs through uh, the disappointment as they um, step away from God and when sin comes in after the fall. This agape love threads all the way through the Old Testament stories when God meets with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and all the way through the Old Testament despite the errors they make, the disappointments that they make. And then this thread of love runs through all the way into the New Testament and into the birth and the death and the resurrection of Jesus into the establishment of the church, the coming of the Holy Spirit and then that thread goes into the church as it is established where we are now. And then it continues all the way through to eternity. This love, this agape love, is initiated by God. Last week we were looking at a passage in Romans and thinking about hope. And in Romans chapter 5 verse 8, Paul again says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His love to us is initiated by God. He sent his son, God sent his son, Jesus, to stand in our place. Jesus left heaven, and with great humility, he stood in poverty and hardship. He came along to stomp in the mud, going back to our picture. He waded in it, he got his feet dirty, and he met us where we were and perhaps where we still are in the messiness of our everyday lives. He stomped in the mud so that our eyes would be lifted beyond where we are to be able to see something different, to be able to see something of the wonder and the majesty of God, and to bring us back into a relationship with God, our Heavenly Father. So God's love for humankind goes beyond time and space. And I think that makes it hard for us to comprehend just its magnitude and its depth and its beauty and also the degree of sacrifice it involves. But it really is eternal. 
And so as we think about how we respond to that, I think there is only one thing we can do, and that is to love God back in the same way that he has loved us. So with this understanding of love, Paul therefore says, from verse 1, suppose I speak in the languages of human beings or of angels. If I don't have love, I am only a loud gong or a noisy cymbal. Suppose I have the gift of prophecy. Suppose I can understand all the secret things of God and know everything about him. And suppose I have enough faith to move mountains. If I don't have love, I'm nothing at all. Suppose I give everything I have to poor people. And suppose I give myself over to a difficult life so I can brag. If I don't have love, I get nothing at all. And Paul is saying, what is the point of doing all of these things and loving others in response if I don't love God? If you think about a gong or a cymbal, in in an orchestra in the middle of a symphony, played in the right place, they add so much dimension, don't they, to the sound and the wall of noise. It is a real commitment of sound to ring the gong or clash those cymbals together. But if that cymbal or that gong is in the wrong place, it does not sound good, does it? There's nothing beautiful. And as my dad would have said, it's just noise. So Paul is saying the same thing. Without love, these spiritual gifts are meaningless. And this should stop and make us think. Have a sip. It should make us think about our motives for what we do in our time together in church. So Paul is saying, whether we welcome at the door, whether we serve coffee, whether we're with the disciples group, if we do anything standing up here, if we do any of that, if we pray for people, if we're clearing up at the end, if we're sorting out the car park, if we do it without love, it's futile. If we're challenging others prayerfully in our core groups or our communities, if we do anything that serves those in need, refugees, those who are lonely, if we do any of that without love, it's meaningless. We have missed the point. So everything, whether it's seen or in the background, should be covered and underpinned and dressed in love. So we understand what Paul is talking about with this agape love. And we understand that we need it. But what should that love look like? Well, handily for us, Paul has given us some examples. So I read on from verse 4. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not want what belongs to others. It does not brag. It is not proud. It does not dishonor other people. It does not look out for its own interests. It does not easily become angry. It does not keep track of other people's wrongs. Love is not happy with evil, but it is full of joy when the truth is spoken. It always protects It always trusts, it always hopes, it never gives up. And this describes, doesn't it, God's attitude towards us. And this should also describe our attitude towards other people. It should also describe our attitude towards God. And the practicalities, I think, of these words are perhaps slightly differently to that perhaps slightly ethereal, rather angelic tint that we often use when we're thinking about these words. 
Tom Wright, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, describes this as a commitment of mind and will. And so when we're thinking then about commitment and actions, there are four actions, not words, actions, um, for us to think about. So the first one is prepare. I have quite a lot of conversations about church with a lot of people, um, and uh, sometimes we'll be chatting away, and then the person will say something like this, oh, well, I don't really like church, I'm a bit bored, maybe I'll look elsewhere. Okay, so I'll have a bit of a chat about it. And then I might say, well, how do you prepare to come to church? And actually, what are you committed to? What can you contribute to our church? I think with the evening service, we have a huge advantage compared to the morning service because if we wanted to, we could spend the entire day preparing to come to church. Not doing anything else, just preparing to come to church. In the Old Testament, there were really laborious rules about how uh, the Israelites were to prepare for worship, what to do, when to do it, and even who could do it. But because of Jesus, we are free to come to God whenever we want, whatever the circumstances or the situation, wherever we find ourselves. But that does not mean we should be casual or slapdash or half-hearted about it. We need to bring God our best and most honest worship every time, even if we feel like we're that person standing in the mud and maybe we don't even have a smile on our face. There is room for every emotion here. When I worked in Uganda, I'd often see my colleagues um, as we all went to different churches on a Sunday, and they would usually wear their best clothes. And they'd even go so far, um, because of the mud or the dust that was around them, to take a handkerchief with them, and then they would just dust their shoes when they got there, so that they were still looking their best to praise God. I'm not saying that we need a whole new smart wardrobe for church. I'm not saying we have to put on our best clothes, but we need to come with our best hearts every time. I wonder what you do in the couple of hours before church. Are you finishing off a piece of work? That means you actually leave home 10 minutes after you wanted to arrive here. Are you doing your shopping, playing a computer game? Or have you spent time intentionally shifting your eyes towards God? Have you perhaps read what I would describe as a nourishing book? Or have you caught up with a friend over lunch or a group of friends and had a really encouraging time thinking about how God has been at work in your week? Or is it that you've spent time in prayer listening to worship music? Maybe you've been out running and that's your best time to connect with God. Not all of us have this luxury. If we have to work on a Sunday, we work shifts or if we have family commitments. But there are many of us who could take that time on a Sunday to really prepare to come to church so that when we come to church, we are ready. Once we get together at church or in our weekday communities, living out this way of love means pouring out our love in worship to God. And this is in our songs and this is in our posture, how we stand, how we sit. And it's also in our attention. We are choosing to set aside time to meet with God. We're choosing to meet with God, and we're choosing to meet together and to publicly worship him.
And so we need to commit to that and we need to pay attention to what's going on rather than catching up on our life admin or thinking about what we need to do on Monday. I wonder if we can take the example of the persecuted church who give up so much at such uh, risk and cost to meet together. So I wonder, do we dare abandon ourselves to truly bring our hearts to God? So as we prepare and then as we dare, are we then ready to share what God gives us? Are we ready to receive revelation from the Holy Spirit through the gifts that Paul talks about? A word, a picture, a testimony of faith. And are we willing and ready to offer that, to share that to God's family in love? As we tune ourselves into God through our songs and our time together, he speaks to us in different ways and we should expect him to speak to us. We want him to be bringing healing and wholeness, and sometimes he involves us in that. We might feel a quickening of heart or a picture or a word or a Bible verse just drops into our heads. It might be a specific word of knowledge, someone with a physical ailment or a family situation that we might then be able to direct to prayer ministry. Sometimes what we think we hear doesn't really make sense, and so here we would always have someone to help you discern what it is that you're hearing. Sometimes um, the things that don't seem to make sense only then make sense in sequence as we hear more on what God is doing around the room. It's good to have the confidence to share it. It might not be up the front. It might be actually uh, with someone over a cup of coffee. But all of it builds up the family of God in the process. When I was a physio student, I had placements and was often away or somewhere new for a few weeks at a time. And I remember going to one church and I think this was maybe the first time or the second time I'd been. And a lady came up to me at the end of the service and asked if she could pray for me. I'd never met her before. I'd never met her since. I don't even think I, I knew her name. And she knew nothing about what was happening for me at the time. But the picture that she gave me was so specific to where I was. And it spoke so much to me. I didn't actually need to know anything about her. And that was for me at the time, but I've then used that picture and that image she gave me to encourage others. And so the, the community of believers have been built up, I hope, through that one lady's action. So we need to be ready to share what it is that God gives us. And then we also need to be ready to care. Living the way of love that Paul writes about means loving and caring for others in the same way that God cares for us. It means embracing those in our church family who are different to us. It might mean sitting with someone new. It might mean having patience for those whose clothes rustle. Um, it might mean just loving the person who's singing in their own personal key, even if it's right beside us. It might be living in peaceful celebration with people whose lives are so different to your own, and perhaps they have what you want we need to submit to the wisdom of those who lead us. And we need to be ready to forgive and forgive and forgive to everyone who needs it within our community. There is immense power of love in being part of this worshipping community, of lovingly inviting each other to walk together, to encounter the healing power of Jesus, whatever stage of our walk with God. This love, this way of love, of caring, is really fearless, and it's energizing, it's faithful, and it's totally self-giving, and it is sacrificial. 
we enter into the dilemmas and the joys and the sorrows of life in order to point to something more. I think love in these four ways is evident within our 630 family. But I wonder, how far are we prepared to go? What depths are we willing to go to as we follow the way of love? What if this involves sacrifice? If we used verse 4 to 7 as a prayer each day, asking the Holy Spirit to release us into loving others, what would our day look like? What would you do differently? What would it prompt you to do and where would it prompt you to go? Because if we want others to encounter Jesus for themselves, as we follow the way of love, we go with Jesus into the mud and the dilemmas and the sorrows of pain of life. We lovingly take our friends by the hand and we invite them to look ahead, to point the way to God. We stomp in the mud again and again and again simply because we love them in the same way that God loves us. And that love of patience and kindness and of peace. We offer this love without the expectation that it will be reciprocated because it's not about you, it's about them. And we keep doing this. And if we feel like we can't, we have only to look to Jesus whose way of love led all the way to the cross. we're reminded again of that verse in Romans that we read earlier, that God loved us first, and so we love in response to that. So we've thought about the context of this passage and the relevance to our 630 family. We've thought how vitally important love is to our time together. And so we get to the last few verses of this chapter. And I have tussled with this, with this whole chapter, because I couldn't really find a framework or a structure, and I quite like things to have a neat ending. But for us in our earthly bodies, there is no neat ending that fits our frame of reference. Paul talks about the role of love in a worshipping community. And then at this point, coming up to verse 8, he changes his focus from the near focus to the far focus. And he says in verse 8, love never fails. And it's not fail as in to let down, but fail as in to run out or stop or end. The message version says it this way, love never dies. And so Paul then goes on to say in verse 8, but prophecy will pass away. Speaking in languages that had not been known before will end and knowledge will pass away. What we know now is not complete. What we prophesy now is not perfect. But when what is complete comes, the things that are not complete will pass away. Paul is saying that these spiritual gifts are temporary while awaiting the full embodiment of God's kingdom coming on that epic, magnificent scale. Once we are there, we won't need spiritual gifts. We won't need that revelation to tell us what eternal life will be like because we will be there. We will be within that perfect, wholesome and shimmering love of God And so Paul just uses three uh, images to help explain this a bit further. In verse 11, he says, When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I had the understanding of a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. 
Now we see only a dim likeness of things. It is as if we were seeing them in a foggy mirror. But someday we will see clearly. We will see face to face. What I know now is not complete. But someday I will know completely, just as God knows me completely. So he's saying like a child growing into adulthood, we're not yet fully mature in our faith. There is so much more we have yet to learn and experience. Like looking in a mirror, things are back to, back to front and might be a little bit foggy or misty. So we don't see the whole picture, but one day we will see God face to face. And he's also reminding us that we don't yet know everything of God's greatness and love. But actually God already knows us in that way. So while we wade around in the mud of our own lives and the lives of others, it can be hard to make sense of the truth of what is ahead. And this is where faith and hope come in. We have faith that Jesus has the power to stand with us and those that we care for to present us, to bring us into the presence of God. And we have hope of eternal life with God. As we stomp in the mud, thinking of that picture I had as I prepared, we share Paul's viewpoint of the near focus and the far focus, the now and the not yet, the mud and the beauty. And there isn't a full stop, and that is the whole point, because that thread of love runs through the fiber of absolutely everything, of everything we do, and it crosses time and space and culture and any other division you can think of. It is brought to mesmerizing fulfillment in God's plan, where the things that don't make sense now will make sense as we worship God in praise and adoration forever. Paul says at the very end of this chapter, these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Just the other day, I heard someone say, oh, all good things come to an end. Not for us, not for us who have faith that Jesus' sacrificial love brings us back to God, giving us hope of that eternal life. Because when we reach eternal life, there is nothing left but love. In the words of an old hymn, faith will vanish into sight, hope be emptied into light, love in heaven will shine more bright, and there we shall remain living in love and praise to God for eternity. Amen.